Morning, family. Uh, the reading today comes from John 6, the first 15 verses. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So concludes the passage. You know, we don't often think of arguments as good things, do we, friends? I, I certainly don't. You know, our arguments are what we hope does not happen, I'm presuming, uh, when you get together with family or friends this week, the last thing you want is for some blow up to ruin all of your hopes and dreams for the next seven to 14 days. Some of us are probably already gearing up mentally to serve as peacemakers. And so I say on this particular day, Lord, would you protect us from conflict and division this week? Amen. Please protect us and help us to be more concerned about walking in love than we are about defending ourselves. That's where so much of our conflict comes from. Those are the arguments we don't want. But, but there's another kind of argument, friend, that is actually really good. Really, really good. The entire gospel of John, you may have never thought about this, it's an argument. The whole book is an argument. And the author, most likely the Apostle John, he's, he's contending for something. He's, he's presenting a catalog of evidence, proof in court, as it were, to make a case for something. You know, some of you parents, your kids are always trying to convince you to, to do something or give them something. Well, well, John is trying to convince you of something here. What's that? 
John 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, so thinking about that, what what does John want? What, What is the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write this gospel What is he seeking? Because know this, friend, the word of God is not passive. It's not just an information archive. It is the effective word of the living God. He has an agenda, and that's good. So what's the claim here? Well, well, John wants us to believe Jesus, to trust Jesus, to, to stop looking to yourself, or to other people, or your stuff, (laughs) for life and turn to Jesus because he knows that only then will we actually experience true joy in life. You won't won't find that anywhere else. You have to look to Jesus and, and to push us in that direction, John makes an argument. So all you debaters out there, pay attention, okay? The first 12 chapters of the gospel present seven signs or proofs that demonstrate the deity and life-giving power of Jesus. So, so we've seen three of them so far. This morning's the fourth. Chapter two, Jesus changes water into wine. Chapter four, he heals an official's dying son. Chapter five, he raises a man who'd been lame for 38 years. Those are the first three signs. And and all of those argue, contend, that Jesus is the Savior of the world who came to make right all that our sin has made wrong, starting with what? The breakdown in our relationship with God and and the divine judgment we deserve as a result of that. So each of these signs, you know, if you've been driving down the just even your neighborhood right now, there's Christmas lights, there's lit signs. You go down to Lothian Turnpike, there's more signs. There's just over signs everywhere. Well, well, just like all the signs in our world flash something, so too these sign, signs shout something. Try to say that three times fast. The signs shout. They shout that Jesus is worthy of your obedient trust. That's what they shout to you. But by the time we get to chapter six, there, there is, shall we say, a growing problem. There's a problem because no matter how many signs Jesus performs, no matter how many witnesses, as Kevin was preaching last Sunday, he summons, people continue to what? They either completely misunderstand him or they explicitly refuse to believe in him. Misunderstanding or unbelief. And and here in chapter six, you've got a large crowd following Jesus. Look at verse two, but it's not because they believe Jesus is the son of God. Why are they following him? It's because in their eyes, Jesus is a spiritual spectacle. He's a show. They're just enamored with all the miraculous signs he's doing. It's not genuine faith, friend. It's signs faith. What's that? It's it's a false faith. 
that, that runs no deeper than the material blessing that Jesus has given us lately. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. It's not genuine faith. That's a pretense of faith. So you've got a pretense of faith and you have explicit unbelief and that just keeps increasing over the next six chapters. Remember this, this whole gospel is a story until that, that culminates pretense and unbelief. It culminates in chapter 12 at the end of that chapter in an outright widespread rejection of Jesus on the part of both his people and their leaders. And yet, this is what we need to see this morning. The Savior, in the midst of that, while, while that's the direction things are going, he continues to demonstrate his divine power. Confronting us, confronting you with, with sign after sign, with reason after reason to trust and obey him. He, he doesn't mock, he doesn't scorn. He doesn't peace out. <laughs> he, he graciously reveals two things. The depth of our insufficiency and the greatness of his provision. He just keeps doing that. Why, why does he do that? Because Jesus is seeking to compel you to turn from your pride and humbly confess that no need is too great for the Lord who provides. That, that, if you want, this is a familiar passage to some of us. The main point is simply that no need is too great for the Lord who provides. And to convince us of that, Jesus does two things here, which will be our two points this morning, very simply. Point number one, first thing he does, verses three to nine, Jesus reveals the depth of our insufficiency. <laughs> and that might not be as obvious as, as you think it is. L look at verse four. What, what does John tell us here? Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, that, that is a lot more, guys, than just a, oh, by the way, or, oh, so in case you're keeping track of time, you're one of those detail-oriented people. No, okay, that, that's not just a time marker. That, that is critical biblical background. Okay, that, when, when, that verse four is, is like, the, it's the lens through which the entire sixth chapter of the Gospel of John has to be seen in order for us to understand what God is saying here. Okay, it's a redemptive historical lens. So, so what's this Passover? It's, it's the festival, the Jewish festival, that commemorated the greatest act of deliverance in the history of the nation of Israel, which is what? The Exodus from Egypt. If you're not familiar with the story, for 400 years, that's a long time. It's longer than our country's been around, you know? God's people suffered the oppression of slavery in Egypt. Until one night, the Lord decisively intervened. He told every Israelite family to, to kill a lamb 
and to paint some of that blood over the door of their house. And so when, when the angel of death went through the land that night, he killed all the firstborn sons in Egypt, but he passed over every home covered in blood. What's that a foreshadow of? Of Jesus, right? As John the Baptist says earlier in John's gospel, he's, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that night, right away, Pharaoh immediately begged the Israelites to leave. I bet he did. Get out of here. And they didn't even have time to, to leaven the bread they were cooking. So that they grabbed what possessions they could and they ran, rescued by the strong arm of the Lord. And so that, that Passover festival, that represented something for the Jews, friends. That, that represented God's faithfulness to provide for his people. Okay, not, not just physical food, but all that we need. Okay, beginning with salvation from sin and the judgment we deserve. And here's what we need to see here in John chapter 6. As the story begins, the same God who delivered his people from slavery in Egypt all of those centuries ago is the same God who is now sitting in the hill country east of the Sea of Galilee, resting with his disciples. Same God. It's amazing. And he's no less aware of the physical and spiritual needs of his people. So what does Jesus do? The son of God, he lifts up his eyes and sees a large crowd coming toward them. Which John adds in verse 10 is about 5,000 men. What's mo it's quite likely it was a lot more than just men. That was just how they were counting the crowd. And so different scholars think they were probably somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. Okay, clearly they were all violating COVID protocols. <laughs> not supposed to have that many people together, right? It's a lot of people. And, and Jesus knew they'd been looking for him for a long time, that, that they're hungry. Again, he's aware of our physical and spiritual needs, right? Same God. And so he turns to Philip. Philip, that's not an accident. Philip was from Bethsaida, which was a village close to this area. And he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It's really striking what is not there. Think about that. There's, there's no impatience. There's no eye roll. <laughs> there's no, oh, great. You again. Who, who has the GPS tracker? You know, it's just none of that. No, go away, leave us alone. Jesus didn't see an inconvenience. He saw an opportunity to provide. Isn't that convicting? And Jesus sees you too, friend. Right? Right now. He's aware of your need. Food included. Your, your plight isn't hidden from the Almighty One. And even when our motives, like this crowd's, are just as selfish, his attitude remains one of pronounced compassion. Praise God for that. But you know, Jesus didn't just see the crowd's physical need for food, okay? He also saw an even deeper 
spiritual need in his disciples. Think about this. He he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread? Not because he doesn't know what he's going to do. Okay? But he's testing him. What's what's he testing? Look at verse 7. Philip's answer tells us what Jesus is testing. He says back to the Lord, Jesus, 200 denarii, okay, that's about eight months of your normal wage for a day laborer. That's a lot of money. 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough bread for each one of these people to get a bite. He's right. 15, 20,000 people. And I, I cannot help but read that and wonder, friend, if you have ever felt just like Philip. You ever, you ever felt like Philip? You, you know, maybe, that God has given you a responsibility to care for someone. Or maybe it's not just one person. Maybe it's a growing family. Or, or maybe it's a whole pile of people in your company, work. Or, or maybe it's an entire church. <laughs> and, and you feel duty-bound to serve them and to care for them, to provide for that girl you just married. But the need staring you in the face, if you are being honest, as Philip was, is utterly overwhelming. And there are a lot of nights and a lot of mornings where your your anxious, beating heart shouts, this is just impossible. No way. (laughs) This is ridiculous. You want me to love my wife like Christ loves the church? (laughs) That's funny. You want me to be patient with that coworker who does nothing but question my leadership and undermine my authority to everybody else around here? You want me to be a mom to three kids under four? You, you want me to talk to that friend about Jesus? You want me to preach how many sermons between now and the day I retire? <laughs> how am I supposed to do that? Ever felt like Philip? Well, Philip was right, wasn't he? Jesus even if we could find a place that had enough bread, there is no way we could afford it. It's impossible. For real. He, he admits what? The utter inadequacy, hear that friend, of human means of solving the problem at hand. And his buddy Andrew follows suit. Right? Lord, we got a kid here with five barley loaves. But by the way, that that wasn't like the, you know, the three foot long party at Subway thing. Those are little. (laughs) And barley was for the poorest of the poor. Wealthy, middle class people, they didn't eat barley, they ate wheat. And the fish were probably like that big 
and pickled, dried. So we got a kid here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Yeah. So what's the setup? 15,000 people need dinner. What do we have? Dinner for one. You ever, you ever felt like you are living in that gap, friend? For a long time. What, what do you assume? Let's, let's linger here, okay? What, what do you assume when the Lord makes you aware of a need in your circle of relational responsibility? Do you immediately conclude you have to find a way to solve the problem? You got to dig deep. You got to to grind it out like like all those lesser mortals have failed to. Or maybe, maybe you just despair, right? Because you think there is no way in God's green earth I can do this. That's impossible. I, I do both of those things, friend. And sometimes, you know, in the same hour, right? <laughs> bing, 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 bing. And I would add, it feels responsible on some level, doesn't it? You know, we, we, we kind of tell ourselves, like, well, like, unlike all those other checkout people who just seem to clock in, clock out, and not give a rip, I actually care. I feel responsible. I'm, I'm feeling the weight. You know? Friend, the problem isn't feeling responsible, okay? That the problem is what we do with our sense of responsibility. Think about this. We, we tend to flip, back to the ping pong thing, but between self-pity that arrogantly concludes that what God is asking of us is impossible. Option one. And, bing, on the other side, a self-sufficiency that arrogantly concludes we can handle the situation on our own. Self-pity, self-sufficiency. <laughs> what do we need to know in the midst of that craziness? What, what's Jesus getting at here? What, what's he testing and graciously helping Philip and Andrew with here? It's simply this, friend, that when God sets an overwhelming need before you or a challenge that feels impossible, he's not trying to frustrate you or to kill you. He is trying to satisfy your soul with himself. That's what God's up to. Okay, he loves you. And that is why he's giving you an opportunity to to recognize the depth of your inability so you can what? Rest and rejoice in his ability. Love does that to you and me. In other words, the path of joy isn't, isn't this path of, I've got it with some periodic help from God. The path of joy is the path of knowing God through moment by moment dependence on God. 
And the first step down that path, you ready for this? It's not a pleasant one, (laughs) hint, hint, is acknowledging the depth of our insufficiency. Jesus is getting at that here, right? He's he's angling for that. He's asking questions to help Philip and Andrew and all their pals recognize that. So what do we need to remember when we're tempted to to throw up our hands in despair or or charge ahead in self-reliance? What do we have to remember? God isn't messing with us. And God doesn't need us. He's loving us by showing us just how much we need him. What's Jesus doing? In love. He's graciously revealing the depth of our insufficiency. Point one. Here's the second thing Jesus is doing. Praise God, he doesn't stop there. Jesus displays the abundance of his provision. Two things. He exposes, he reveals, because in our arrogance and self-pity, we're blind to it. The depth of our insufficiency, and then he displays the abundance of his provision. So recognize this, what Philip and Andrew had to offer didn't just mean, you know, kind of shorn up in a few places. Eh, that corner's a little off. A few more bricks over here. No, no, what they had was woefully inadequate. Okay, that, that's the point. Five little loaves, two fish, what are they for so many? They're in the hands of the disciples, They're nothing. But not in the hand of God. Not in the hand of God. If if I were Jesus, think about this. If you were Jesus, here's what I would, what would I be tempted to say at this point in the story? I think I would be tempted to say this. All right, guys. Why don't you move over and let a professional take care of this? You know? Just, just, yeah, uh, barley. You know, just, can you just get out of the way here? Like, you're in the way. Hello, move to lunch. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do that. He, he takes the loaves in his hands and what? He gives thanks to God the Father. He gives thanks. Why why would the son of God, think about this, who fashioned the earth out of nothing, bother to take the loaves and fish in his hand? Why why not just dismiss him? Ah, That's funny. With a wave of his omnipotent hand. Friend, the answer is, it's not that Jesus needs you because he does not. And in that, there is great freedom. Praise God. He, God does not need us. Why, so why is he taking this in his hands? It's because he delights to use us. And he loves to display his power in weakness. It's, it's, the, it's the upside down logic of the kingdom of God. You know, we, we, we look at our weakness and ah, despair. What does Jesus do? He takes our weakness and then he transforms it into a theater for the power of God. He he thanks his father for what he's already provided, for, for what looked weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. And then he thanks his father for what he is about to provide. You know, as, as the son of God, 
Jesus already knew how he's going to feed everybody. But he's also what? He's the son of man. And as the son of man, he's, he's modeling something for us here, friends. He's, he's modeling the childlike faith that knows nothing is too hard for my heavenly father. Nothing's too hard. You know, so sometimes we, we forget that. We think, well, Jesus is God. So, you know, the whole time he's like inwardly chuckling. Like, ah, you guys are so funny if you only knew. Well, he is God. Point of the signs, right? They shout he's God. But he's also the son of man. And he, he shows you and me, friends, in our humanity, what it looks like to be gratefully dependent and grateful and thankful for what God has already provided and what he is yet to provide. Do you do that? Or do you despise your weakness? And in your despising, assert to God's face. No, 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 no. There is no way you can make this a theater for your power. It's foolishness, friends. Do, do you thank God for what he has given you? Even when it looks woefully inadequate or, or do you wring your hands in despair? Think of it this way, okay? One of the surest signs of unwillingness to trust God for what he has yet to give is our failure to thank God for what he has already given. And listen to this, okay? One of the best ways to strengthen our trust in God while we are waiting for his provision is what? To busy ourselves with thanking God for what he has already provided. It's so important because we have the same father Jesus does, Christian. If you're in Christ, a good, good father who's promised to lavishly provide all that we need for life and godliness. And so having given thanks to our father, to his father, Jesus begins to distribute food to the multitude. Every man, every woman, every child, he, he gives to them. He keeps on giving to them until verse 11. He, they had what? As much as they wanted. Verse 12, until they had eaten their fill. I mean, John is just... He's repeating himself, right? What's the point? Everybody was stuffed. You know, it's, it's post-Thanksgiving. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, the Lord's provision was so abundant that each of his disciples had what to carry? A basket full of leftovers to remind their unbelieving, forgetful heart that I serve a God who provides. One full basket for every disciple. It's, it was a miracle, friends. Jesus created abundance in the midst of lack and, and plenty in the midst of poverty and, and provision in the midst of their need. The meal's over and they, they have more food than they had when the meal got started. I mean, how many of you who are cooking tonight wish that was your experience? You know, I just started off with two steaks and everybody ate and now I have 10. You know, it's, wow. That's not an accident. 
That, that's not just a funny detail. That is the point of the story, which is what? Jesus isn't a miser. He's not Scrooge. He's a generous, generous king. And no need is too great for the Lord who provides. That's the point. But know this. That physical bread Jesus gave them, that that satisfied their stomachs, but it symbolized something else, friend. So something that's going to emerge even more clearly in a few weeks when when we get to the second half of chapter six. What's, What's that? That Jesus is the true bread of life. Okay, not not on account of the material blessings he gives, but on account of who he is. So so we can trust him to provide for our physical needs in in miraculous ways. But there is only one provision. There's only one gift that can truly satisfy your soul. And that's the Lord himself. Jesus himself. Because to know him, to believe him, to to obey him is to experience a satisfaction and life, a a fullness of joy in relationship with God that even death can't take away from you. And that means, friend, that that the ultimate measure of the Lord's provision in your life isn't your spouse or your kids or your friends or your degree or your paycheck, as good as those things are, it's not even a gift that we are waiting to receive. Though, Though you may be waiting or have yet, to appropriate it by faith. It is a gift God has already given. What's that? That's the Christmas gift of his one and only son, in whom God the Father is perfectly revealed to the eternal satisfaction and joy of our souls. That gift you are not waiting to get. It's the gift of Jesus. And that Jesus is abundantly able to give us all that we need and to give what all the people you feel responsible to care for need too. He does both. And all the parents and leaders and disciple makers and Christian young and old in the room said, <laughs> Amen. Amen. We, we need to linger on this, friends, that, that when we are weak, Jesus is strong. That when we are poor, Jesus is rich. When we are ignorant, Jesus is wise. When we don't have what it takes, God does. Where our resources are inadequate, his resources are wholly sufficient. Whereas my Little son Tyler's favorite Bible memory verse goes, what is impossible with men is what, Tyler? What is impossible with men is possible with God. That's right. We say that a lot in our house (laughs) for good reason, I think. Because no need is too great for the Lord who provides. And that's not a one-off in Scripture. Right, like, oh, look how that showed up. Back, back onto more depressing topics. No, that that is that just shouted throughout the whole story of redemption. You know what? What did the Lord say to Paul? Second Corinthians twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for you, buddy. For my power is made 
perfect in weakness. It doesn't just show up, it's perfected in weakness. It does its best work, not when you're strong, man, but when you're weak. What, so, so because the Lord said that to Paul, what could Paul then say to the rest of the Corinthians? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That is what you get when you put together two things in God's economy, human insufficiency and divine ability. If you, human insufficiency plus divine ability equals what? the power and provision of the God who provides. That's the equation. And you might think, think about this as we prepare to conclude. You might think that the crowd Jesus supernaturally fed on that day, that night, would would respond to him with awestruck trust, belief, obedience. Like, whoa, clearly you're the son of God. People can't create out of nothing like that. And their initial response, you know, seems to point to that direction first, at least. Look at verse 14, chapter six. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This guy's the prophet we've been waiting for. Well, well, they got two things right. Okay, let's start there. First, they recognized the miracle wasn't an end in and of itself. It was what? A sign. Remember when I held and loved on the Chick-fil-A pretend sign a few weeks ago? <laughs> it's, it's not, the point isn't the sign. The point is the, the restaurant, the chicken, to which it points. Same with the signs here. They point to Jesus, the power and identity of Jesus. So I got that right. It's a sign. Second, they also recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of a prophecy that Moses had made centuries earlier. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. So the Jews had been waiting for this great prophet to come. They got two things right. But that crowd got the most important thing Terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. Instead of submitting to Jesus, they tried to use Jesus to achieve their own priorities and purposes. In verse 15, Jesus perceives that. Look there. He perceives they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. I mean, that's not surprising on one level, right? You know, Moses led us out of slavery to the Egyptians. Surely the prophet par excellence who is coming will lead us out of what? Slavery to the Romans, <laughs> right? We, before, after, there's a pattern. You know, let's, let's make Jesus king and get the party started. And and frankly, if they had 15 to 20,000 people, you know, that was a force to be reckoned with. 
And certainly none of those people had very fond thoughts of Rome. What are we to make of that? What do they get terribly wrong? Well, let's observe a few things here. If you think that you can make Jesus king, you have no idea who he is. Say that again. If you think you can make Jesus king, you have no idea who he is. Why? Because Jesus is the king of the universe, right? He is the king. He's he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, ascended on high. He is ruling over every moment and situation and even the sinful desires in your heart right now. He's sovereign. He is the king. You go thinking, oh, hey, can we make you king? You have no idea what you're talking about. And lest we mock them for this, let's get a little more personal. And his kingdom isn't the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of heaven. If if you're a Christian, listen, his kingdom is your kingdom, which means you are not part of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is not your kingdom either, friend. But sadly, sadly, we so often act like the kingdom of this world is the best thing going down. How do we do that? Well, we try to take back the nation for God. Ever heard that? Or we pin all our hope for the future on a certain candidate getting elected or keeping a certain party in office. What what do so many of all our our political fixations and anxieties and, and ceaseless checking of the news reveal? What reveals we're just like the crowd in John 6. We're just like the crowd. We're, we're trying to build the kingdom of God on earth instead of remembering that our citizenship is in heaven and that only King Jesus can give us the joy and life that we desperately need. You you realize a politician can't do that? Political party can't do that. Oh, but we think they can. We, We just put, you know, different language on it. Friend, if your hope for the future rises when your candidate wins or sinks when your candidate loses, just assume that means you have invested a large portion of your hope in the kingdom of this world instead of in King Jesus. Recognize that. And remember this, when you do, you will never find a ballot box that will make all things new. You realize that? You'll never find one. But, but who makes all things new? Jesus can. And Jesus what? He will. And he's not waiting for you to make him king or vote him into office to get that done. So why would we set our hope in anything but that King Jesus? 
Don't hope in a political party, friend. Hope in Jesus. And take care. Take, please take care that, that you let Jesus define what you really need instead of trying to con- cajole him or manipulate him into giving you what you think you need. Because the crowd wanted Jesus to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. What, what is the greatest need? I know, and so do 15,000 other people. We got to get rid of Rome. And all God's people said, Amen. And the whole time, Jesus knew that if he did that, he could not meet the greatest need or yours or mine. What's that? That is deliverance from sin and death, friend. It's your greatest need. It's the greatest need of every person you will meet this week. It's the greatest need of every awkward member of your family whom you hope you don't get cornered to when people are opening gifts this week. It's your greatest need. So so often we're no different than that crowd. They, They tried to use Jesus instead of humbly trusting and submitting to him. Don't do that. Don't don't come to Jesus with a demand, make my life easy. Make my life comfortable. Give me that relationship. I prayed long enough, you owe it to me. Give me that possession. I've saved long enough, I deserve it from you. Don't, Don't say, I will gladly submit to you as my king if you give me what I want. Friends, the reason that's folly isn't just that we're the creature and he's the creator. It's that we don't have a clue what we really need apart from him. (laughs) We just don't have a clue. The God who made you knows perfectly what you really need. We need deliverance from slavery to sin and the death our sins deserve. We need the smile of God's favor. We need the joy of eternal life. We need the hope of heaven and the promise that we will always be with the Lord. That is what we need and that is what Jesus has given us. And that's exactly what you can experience right now through faith in him. I, let there be much thanksgiving to God in this church that King Jesus does not take his cues from little old us. If you try to avail yourself of his sufficiency for your aims, he will lovingly disappoint you. But if you avail yourself of his sufficiency for his aims, he will thrill your soul. So stop trying to tell him what to do. Recognize your insufficiency. Rest in his abundant provision. And cry out to him as your king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you love us enough to do things we don't like. We don't like to see our weakness. We don't like to feel our insufficiency. We don't like to say with Andrew, what are these for so many? 
But Father, I thank you. We thank you as your people this morning that you love us enough to give us and do what we don't like and if we're honest, don't want you to do. Because Jesus, that is what we really need. We pray you would humble the pride in our self-pity. We pray you would cleanse us of the pride in our self-sufficiency. We ask, Lord God, that you would strengthen our faith in you as the God who provides. And we pray for the glory of your name that you would help us to stop trying to use you to achieve our own aims. And in response to your sufficiency, humbly submit to you. Not just because you're our provider, but also because you're the wise God who knows what is best to give at what time, in what way, for what true need. We trust you. And we pray as we sing this song, you would strengthen that faith in Jesus' name. Amen.